Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Good afternoon, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. I'm coming to you from somewhere in uh, sunny upstate New York, and it is quite a beautiful day, and I'm here in this dark closet (laughs) recording an introduction to one of my favorite episodes so far, and I think you're really going to like this one. I have had some wonderful conversations over the past nine or ten months. It's been a really wonderful journey for me. I think I've made some friends along the way and and just had some great talks with people who I really admire. Uh, And yet, out of all of the the discussions that I've had, I think this discussion is my personal favorite. It's it's the one that I think just touches me in another way. And, and, uh, And that's because the guest this day is Ray Billingsley. Ray Billingsley, the cartoonist behind the long-running strip from King Features, Curtis, who has been around working in the industry since the late 1980s, has known all the greats, uh, has come up with them as his mentors and friends and almost family members, really. And so Ray is steeped in the history of comics, late 20th century history, and he is like one of the last great members uh, of that generation leading to the next, I suppose. He's, he's of the last generation, I think, of newspaper cartoonists, bridging the gap between newspaper comics and the, uh, the world of, of web comics. Ray is, is he's, that, he's a bridge. He really is a bridge. And he's more than that, of course. He's one of the greatest cartoonists working today uh, and a pioneer as an African-American cartoonist following in the wake of great cartoonists like Maury Turner and Ted Shearer. Uh, Ray came up in the late, well, actually in the middle to late 1980s at a time really when there were very few African-American cartoonists in the newspapers, that's for sure. And it's, it's still, it hasn't changed for all that much, has it? Of course, however, though, there are a lot of voices, uh, a lot of diverse voices across the Internet and more in the newspapers than there used to be. But still, Ray's story is is the story of a a pioneer and of somebody who has uh, broken ground and broken ground for 31 years. And uh, that in and of itself is a benchmark. He is... uh, a contemporary with Trudeau. He's a contemporary with Berkeley Breathed. He's he's from that era and that generation. And he's also a, a, a very generous mentor to younger cartoonists who are coming up and come to him for advice as well. He's just a great man. And I, I really admire him so much. Ray's strip, Curtis, is a fabulous strip about an African-American family living in an urban setting. 
and it covers a lot of ground over the course of 31 years, and it really is a family strip. That's what it comes down to. It's about a family, and it's about a neighborhood, and it's about relationships between people. Curtis is in several hundred papers across the United States and elsewhere, and several hundred papers these days is pretty darn good. Uh, it's a venerable strip. It's been a successful strip for 31 years. It's got a big fan base and a big following, uh, but even still, it should be wider known than it is. It should be up there with Doonesbury. It should be up there with Calvin and Hobbes and all of the others. It's well-deserving of an audience on that scale, that's for certain. Still, while many of his contemporaries have seen their work collected in book form and thrive on the bookshelves, uh, preserving their legacy for new generations, uh, there is no current collection of Curtis in print. And there ought to be. Uh, a celebration, uh, collecting the entire, or samples from the entire 31-year span of Curtis, right from the beginning all the way up till today. Uh, but as of right now, there isn't. And Curtis is a, a strip that is uh, uh, relatively low-key. It's not flashy in the way that, say, Bloom County was. It's not controversial in the way that Doonesbury has been many times over the years or even, say, Boondocks was by the great Aaron Magruder. Ray's work is quiet, it's subtle, it builds over a long period of time. Curtis is the kind of strip that you have to get into and follow because it's about people and it's about relationships. And there are no talking animals, right? So there's no stuffed toys, there's no plush toys. Curtis isn't the kind of a juvenile iconoclast that Calvin is in Calvin and Hobbes. The stories are more personal and more real, and, and as you can see in talking to Ray, it is a personal project for him. Uh, certainly after all of this time, Ray is someone who is well-deserving of the Rubin uh, Award. Uh, he's yet, after all this time, to be acknowledged uh, in that way, and uh, I think it's about time. I think also it's time for a collection of Curtis after 31 years. It's something to celebrate, and as I said, Curtis is best read really when you can read it all together over a long period of time because it's the relationships and the stories uh, that, that make it stand out. It is funny, of course, it's a gag-a-day strip, but at the same time, that's secondary, really, to the interactions of the community of characters that Ray has created. And uh, for me personally, the relationship between uh, Curtis and his father, Greg, is a really important one. And it's not one that, that it's, it's not an easy relationship. And it's not a relationship that, the kind of relationship that you see uh, in the in the newspaper comics or in any comics, really, to any great degree. That, that uh, kind of tension that exists between fathers and sons is something that Ray has explored in depth over the course of his career. And I think that that's something uh, that is, again, a rarity in comics and something that should be uh, uh, acknowledged and appreciated. So I'd love to see after this, and, and maybe there'll be a groundswell, I don't know, uh, I don't want to overestimate the importance of this podcast, but still, I, I would love to, to see a collection of Curtis come together. Uh, I think it's well-deserved, and uh, it's about time. That being said, Ray is generous with his time, and he's got a lot of great stories to tell, and a lot of history and uh, a lot yet to come, too. As you can see, Curtis uh, was in the news recently because Curtis uh, introduced a new character uh, based on the great cartoonist, the great African-American cartoonist, Ted Shearer, who did the strip Quincy uh, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. 
Ted Shearer was a master craftsman, and uh, Quincy is something I think that, you know, if you go back and look at, you'll see it's a real, it as, as recently was identified by, uh, I think it was R.C. Harvey in an article in the Comics Journal, it was a masterpiece, wonderful cartoonist, and uh, anyway, I had the pleasure to meet Mr. Shearer at one point, but uh, that's another story. I'm not going to take up any more time. I could talk all day, I guess, about about Ray, but um, I think his stuff is just, it speaks for itself, and I encourage you to go search it out. Uh, write, whoever your favorite publisher of comic strips is, IDW or Fanagraphics or somebody, see if we can get a, a, a bunch of folks interested in getting a Curtis collection out there, because I think it's it, it would only increase the respect and popularity that this strip really deserves. Ray and I talked earlier this summer. It was a long conversation, really enjoyable conversation, so it's going to be split into two parts. I should tell you, Ray was really good friends with Charles Schultz, and uh, they had quite a relationship between them, and so we do talk about Schultz uh, during this episode and in the next episode, uh, albeit uh, it takes a, a second seat to, to the discussion of Ray's overall career. So, Sit back and just, you know, take it all in and enjoy it because Ray is just, well, he's great. It's Ray Billingsley and myself in conversation. First of all, Ray, it is it is a thrill to have you on, on my podcast. This is just a big moment for me, and it's, it's really exciting to have you here. 31 years with Curtis. There are very few cartoonists working today in comic strips who've worked that long, and and had that stellar a career in comic strip. It's right up there with the great ones, you know, Mort Walker and Charles Schultz. You've you've got quite a track record behind you. And as we're talking, uh, you're in your studio, and uh, you were just telling me a little bit about the peanut strip that's up on your wall, because you've got a great oh, collection of art there. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. First of all, let me thank you very much for having me. Uh, the the whole whole thing is very kind of you. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk uh, with you and your listeners. And I uh, hope they have a, a good time out of it. Well, I think but, they're going to. There's no way they can't, you know, because <laughs> you, you, not only do you have a great career and, and is Curtis a wonderful strip and you have a big fan base, uh, but also you've got great stories to tell. And I think everyone's just going to love hearing everything you have to say. So, uh, yeah, it's my pleasure, really. Oh, you know, I, I believe I've been very lucky because, um, like you say, a lot of people have not made it as long. But it seems like I have this well of cartoons and stories that uh, just never runs dry. And uh, for that, you know, I'm, I'm actually blessed also. Um, I do know of people who have come and gone. Their entire career has come and gone. And uh, I don't know, maybe we're tiring. It might be fun, but... Uh, I've never known what it was like not to work. I really enjoy doing what I do so much. Uh, I don't really see myself uh, retiring. I'll probably be one of those cartoonists that you hear about who, you know, passes away while doing this trip. I'll probably most likely be one of those. Well, you know, I think it's evident in the quality of your work and the commitment you've made to your work over the years that, I mean, you do everything on the strip, right? You're writing it, oh, you're yes. drawing it, penciling it, lettering it, just like uh, your mentors, Charles Schultz. and Right. And, uh, yeah, because you're devoted to it. Well, you know, that's the thing. Uh, you really 
And, and bad thing is, I mean, there's a lot of younger people or older hopefuls who would love the chance, you know, to to assist on a comic strip. It's always hard when you think about, you know, letting someone else handle it, uh, unless they're very experienced. They'd have to get your your style down line for line, and that's very difficult. I mean, it can be done. You know, it is difficult. That's that's why a lot of strips like Blondie uh, is still around because you know different artists take over. Right. Uh, right. Nancy that went through several people, oh, and, yeah. but the look really changed each time. I'd rather it look the same, you know, exactly the same, or it wouldn't wouldn't work for me. Well, it's it's you know it's your personal statement, and I think that's one of the things that comes across in Curtis, uh, because of the the storylines and the relationships between the characters. That this is a personal project, as oh yes, as much as oh, a commercial yes. one. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, now, one of the things I want to get in with Schultz. Uh, Schultz always talked about um, writing a, about the life you've lived plus throwing in a lot of imagination. So a lot of my characters actually stem from real people. Um, Mrs. Nelson, who is Curtis's teacher, she was actually my teacher. Uh -huh. and, uh, she was from the third grade. Okay. And she was actually the very first person that saw I had an autistic temperament. She uh -huh. wrote on my, uh, uh, on my report card to my mother, to encourage it and to keep on doing it. But I mean, she was the very first. And uh, as I remember, she was a, a woman of broad stature and she always held on to her glasses rim and she would stare at you. And, you know, everybody was scared. But like I say, that was third grade. So she must have made a huge impression on you. Uh, oh, yeah. You know. She actually got me to um, uh, take place in this. Uh, it was a New York statewide uh, art contest. I was eight years old. I, I did some drawings for it, and I happened to win. So uh, they gave me a little, you know, a little plaque and everything with my name on it and all. But, I mean, it started off at eight years old. That's when I got my first whiff of drawing cartoons. Yeah, that's, that's and, amazing. Oh, and, and let me tell you, I, I don't want to sidestep this. Uh, my initial inspiration actually came from my brother, Richard. I have an older brother. He was into fine art. He was always doing landscapes or portraits, and he was quite good, actually. And we shared a room, and I was trying to emulate him, but my things didn't come out as well. So that's when I, I started drawing cartoon characters. It was my brother that got me started. And, and does he, is he an artist? No, actually, he didn't keep up with it. Uh -huh. uh, you know, you have to have a real interest to keep keep pushing at it. Right. And uh, this is something that I also tell young people today, because they'll do a lot of posting work, uh, on, say, like Facebook or Instagram, one of those. Right. And after a while, you see they sort of drop off. And it's because they don't realize what what this job calls for uh, oh, yeah. it calls for such dedication. And uh, if you're the type that needs to hang out or you need a lot of people around you, this is not the job for you. <laughs> you know, 
you'll start yeah. missing deadlines and then before you know it you know you won't be needed anymore well yeah and and it is the kind of thing that requires a lot of discipline and a lot of right. concentration i i think when you talk to uh younger cartoonists or people who are coming up at least and i know this was true of me when i f- first started i had no idea what kind of capacity as an artist was required you have to draw everything as a right. cartoonist not just people and animals you have to be able to draw a telephone you have to be able to draw a television you have to draw you know uh, the kitchen utensils you have hey, to learn how to draw cars buildings yeah right all of it everything and and so when you're young you don't realize how much is required of you on that level Right. And then you have the, the personalities of to develop within the strip, the characters. Right. To develop. Yeah. And it's the, the script itself. Yeah. You know, it, it's actually more important as to what the characters say than uh, really what they look like. I mean, it, it's great to have good composition in mm-hmm. your panels, mm-hmm. but uh, it's also very important to have rock solid uh, characterizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you certainly have that in Curtis. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, all the characters are, are very, very well defined. And and the strip is, it's very clear. Um, you know, I think the richness of the strip and the characterizations are something that come out over time. And so it asks something of the reader to come back and, and read Curtis. Yes. Uh, in order to develop an understanding and a feeling for those relationships, you know. Actually, because I'm, the humor comes out of that. I'm glad it happens that way. Uh, although sometimes some readers take the characters a little bit too far. Oh, really? It's almost like they feel like the characters have, are real. You know, they've come to life. And uh, sometimes I have to soothe them and say, you know, <laughs> nothing's going to happen to Curtis. You know, he is a comic character, which is why I, I don't show, like, these characters getting all beat up. Like, you might see in Beetle Bailey, uh, Sarge beat beetle to a pulp yeah that's right and the next day he's fine again right see that's not really acceptable uh in my kind of strips the wouldn't the the fans wouldn't go for it they'd probably get upset well it's interesting um when you talk about that in curtis you have there's a a sense of realism in curtis in terms of the relationships between the characters and the setting feels very real and um and tangible at the same time there is a fantasy element like there's not we don't have uh the snoopy character and we we don't have you know kind of the broad humor that you have in beetle bailey but but you do have characters like gunk's chameleon showing up every now and again right and uh and fantasy elements uh that do show up uh periodically but they're firmly set within the kind of realistic boundaries that you've created in, in Curtis that are quite distinct from say what Schultz was doing and what Mort Walker was doing. Right. Well, you know, most of them, uh, they dealt with basically one thing. Um, uh, Mort Walker did basically the army every now and then Beetle went home, but maybe that was for about a week. Right. And Schultz was, you know, always into kid land. I wanted to touch on everyone. I, I couldn't do this strip and, and not have any adults or strangers or, or anyone, anything else interacting because uh, for me, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't come full circle. Now you bring up something that's, that I did on purpose that uh, I don't know how many people really know about, but um, it's true. I, I really don't have uh, regular animals 
like Snoopy or Garfield or Mutz right. or Heathcliff. And the reason for that is because we have so many already. There's so many strips that have animals. Uh, I don't really know what I could bring to the table that mm. would be really unique. And mm. see, for me, I have to be unique. Uh, that's how the fly spec chameleon came along in the first place. A fan wrote and said, I had no animals. And they asked, what's wrong? Can you draw animals? <laughs> and okay. I, I came so out down the gauntlet. Yeah. So, you know, I, I come out with this little creature uh, who, who is a, a sweet little looking little chameleon, but you know, he plays dangerous pranks. Right. So, uh, in that way, that made his voice unique. I, I don't want to have another thinking cat or another thinking dog or, or you know, a, a dog walking around on just two legs. It's been done. Right. It's been done. So unless I could think of something really different, uh, you know, when a dog shows up, he'll just be a dog. Right. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, the situation might make him do something silly, but uh, he'll just be a dog or, you know, yeah. a cat or something like that. Yeah. And, and I think that is one of the things that does set Curtis apart because there are, you know, it, it almost seems like a requirement of newspaper comics, you know, that they have a, uh, a talking animal of some kind right. making wry commentary uh, throughout the strip. And right. Curtis feels uh, more, um, you know, more realistic, although, you know, certainly it's the cartooning is within the broad range of cartooning. You know, it's not a realistically drawn strip in that sense, but right. feels it still feels very tangible and very real. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that you have left uh, talking animals out of it. And uh, and and the chameleon itself doesn't talk. It no. shows up and plays pranks. Yeah. You know, it's really a, bad ones, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so I wanted to touch on something. There are a couple of things that are very interesting that you brought up in uh, early on. And you mentioned your third grade teacher, Mrs. Nelson, who's now a character in the Curtis comic strip, uh, identified you as artistic uh, early on. How was it that she came to see you that way? I was always drawing. Uh, I wasn't a kid that was very outgoing. And um, I used to draw, I think, basically to escape into, you know, my own little world. So by the time I was eight years old, um, I was already getting well into it. Um, I know I was drawn by five. And see, every everyone says, you know, sure, you know, they were drawing as a kid. And, you know, which is true. But, um, it's just how far you were taking it. I think I had a, a seriousness about the industry at a very young, very young age. Yeah. And uh, I prepared for it. And uh, when I was like uh, 12 years old and, and got discovered, uh, I was ready. That's amazing. Oh, let me tell you this story. This is the weird little one. I was 12 years old and, you know, in my junior high school class and my art class, we were involved in a recycling program. Yeah, recycling was way back then. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. Back in the middle. Yeah, you know, this is nothing new. Yeah. But um, our project was to construct. Um, it was an 18 foot tall aluminum can Christmas tree. And, uh, you know, the whole class was involved and I was sort of shirking my duties. And uh, I sort of slinked off to the side. And by this time, I was already carrying a pad around a pencil and I was 
I was sketching all the time. Mm -hmm. So I sat there drawing and I was approached by a woman and uh, she asked to see what I was doing. And I showed it to her. Uh, there was some sort of uh, media coverage. I think the news was there that day. So I thought she was one of them. But uh, she asked to see it. I showed it to her. Then she asked if she could have it. And I said, sure. You know, it's just a drawing. And she wanted my name and my phone number. So I gave it to her. And I think that was on, uh, I think that happened on a Thursday. And I know that Monday she called me up. Wow. It turns out she was the editor of this magazine called Kids Magazine. And it was a magazine for kids. And she was loaded, located uh, in downtown New York. And right. I was in New York. She asked me to come down to the office to do some drawings. Uh, it was to go along with some stories they were doing. So I went ahead and I did it. I knocked them out. And uh, they liked them so much, uh, they hired me. <laughs> yeah, I became like it a staff artist. Yeah. And, which was great because I was, I was earning $5 a drawing. Amazing. So, hey, me, that, I was rich. I was going to say, at 12 years old, $5 a drawing, that's, that's something mind else. You, mind you, we're talking the 60s. Yeah. Right. So that was a lot. I mean, a, a soda, soda was 10 cents. Yeah. And you could get <laughs> you comics get for 50 cents. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Comics were, were that cheap. You can get a, uh, Hot Wheels for 60 cents. You know, Man. I've got some collectibles now. I know that people <laughs> would be interested in. But um, it, it started from there. Um, uh -huh. I was just prepared because I was always drawing. And uh, this is another thing that's sort of a sad fact about it. Uh, my father didn't really back me when I was a kid coming up, he, he was telling me that, you know, I was wasting my time, uh, that I, I would go nowhere with it. And he was like Curtis's father, where he was sort of tight with money. Uh, mm -hmm. he did not believe in giving any of his kids money. You really had to work to get it. Mm -hmm. So, um, when I found out people would pay you for your drawings, I went with it. <laughs> you know, that's how yeah. I made my money. And there you go. I kept selling and I kept making money and I kept selling. And before I knew it, I was building a portfolio. Amazing. And amazing. I mean, it just went on and on from there. Well, you know, that just never happens, right? I mean, that's that's that yeah. old story of uh, what's the Hollywood story of right. uh, Lana Turner, somebody sitting at Schwab's uh, pharmacy at the right. at the the uh, counter and having a soda, and somebody, some agent discovered them and took it, them off and made them a star. And you know, it was an accident. Yeah, but, but it, a fortuitous it just happened to work. You know, sometimes they say, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm not a big believer in these things, but I mean, my gosh, sometimes things are meant to be right. And and certainly you were meant to be a cartoonist. There was really no escaping that. And, oh, yeah. You oh, know, because yeah. I've seen some images of your early work work that you did as a teenager i think you put some images up on instagram and yes. there are a couple of articles out there and i've seen some of that early stuff and it's remarkably developed for somebody at such a young age i mean i compare what i was doing back then it doesn't even come close you know it's, oh thanks it's, yeah it's amazing what you were capable of and how disciplined you were because you know i don't think a lot of people realize how disciplined you have to be to be a cartoonist and and to have your work printed it's got to be right. clean 
it's got to be, you know, you've got to control that work and, and control the space, the pictorial space. You were doing all of that uh, when you were, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. It's, it's right. astounding. Yeah. Right. I had a, a story from my mother from way back. Uh, uh, she told me, she admitted it finally, that I used to look so cute when I was going out for an interview. Because, you know, I had my portfolio under my arm. And here I am going out the door. And I mean, I'm a kid. Right. So Looking like an adult. I see other kids that I say, wow, I must have looked odd going into an office and looking for a job. And yeah. You know, and getting it. Yeah. <laughs> and getting it. So you must have been remarkably composed. At the same time, you must have been, I mean, it sounds like you dressed, you know, in business attire almost. Well, pretty much. Also, this. Uh, when you start very early, I don't think I don't think you know enough to be nervous. I was never nervous. I never got scared around people. Um, it just seemed natural. So right. it, it's not like I went to an interview and I was shaking in my boots or anything. Right. Uh, I sat down and I, I spoke with the people like I knew them for 20 years. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think step. it helped. Well, it certainly must have, because I think that's one of the things that kills people in interviews all the time is, you know, just nerves. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I know that that's happened for me, you know, in moments where I've had to, uh, particularly when you're standing up for yourself and you have to speak for yourself. I find it very, very difficult. And and in those moments where I've had to, to do that, I've routinely failed. But, you you know, you were, as I said, remarkably composed and uh, at that age. But, yeah, there's also a kind of maybe uh, uh, when you're young, as you said, you know, perhaps it's it's just you're not so concerned because you don't think so much is riding on it. So what did your father think then? He was kind of a, a, a bulwark against you moving forward with this. But as you became increasingly more successful, how did your father respond then? Well, it, it never really sunk in. Um, really? I, I was sort of like uh, the bad child, I guess. You know what? Uh, I, I don't really know how proud he was of me uh, when he was alive because we never spoke about it. Uh, mm. It's not like he ever patted me on the back and said, uh, you're doing a good job. He never did. Uh, uh, he wasn't that type of man. He passed uh, back in 90. Oh, and um, he did get a chance to see Curtis start and, you know, start to take off. And when we were going through his things, uh, you know, his personal affairs, that's when we found out that he had kept so many articles and interviews I had done. And he kept uh, clippings from newspapers and things. Wow. So it's like he had kept up with it all the time. But mm. he he was just not the type to ever say so. Wow. So, yeah, actually, it was kind of hard because I found myself trying to please him. And then after a while, I figured it wasn't going to happen. So mm -hmm. I stopped. Yeah. And uh, we were, as a result, we were not close. That's you know, a shame. Yeah. yeah, which which was a shame because um, we could have had an entire lifetime and it didn't happen because he didn't back me. Yeah. So it's like a bittersweet to find out that he actually was proud of you and and proud enough to collect, you know, the memorabilia about you. But right. But right. he couldn't express it. Uh, to your face. And that, that's that's unfortunate. Unfortunately, a lot of relationships between fathers and sons move along in that way. And, right. uh, you know, right. it's it's you need to you need that support. So I guess that's where Greg comes from in Curtis. Curtis. Yes. Is dad. 
Now, yeah. I happen to like Curtis's dad a lot. I, I think, I guess because I've gotten older and I just relate to him more uh, as years go by. But, you know, uh, Curtis's dad is kind of very stern with Curtis. Right. Now, I have been asked on occasion if my father uh, is represented by Greg. Yeah. And my answer is actually, uh, Greg is the type of father I wish I had. You know, uh-huh. he is stern with Curtis and he thinks that, uh, you know, giving children stuff will spoil them. That came from my father. But, um, Curtis can relate more to his father. He could sit down and they watch a movie together. Sure. Yeah. And things like that. My father and I, we never did. So um, it, it's sort of um, bittersweet for me where uh, I just wish he had been more attentive. But you know what? I don't fault the man because, for one, he gave me my work ethic. It was the thing of if you wanted something, you worked for it. You worked hard for it. Mm-hmm. And um, that was part of the discipline I got early on in life. I've been able to use that all through my life. Hard work doesn't doesn't phase me because right. that's what I've done all my life. Clearly, yeah. You were pounding the pavement when you were a teenager and when you were in school at, at School of Visual Arts. You right. Were- And, and, you know, uh, most of your younger uh, listeners will never know what it's like to pound the pavement. Right. They don't have to do that. Yeah. You really had to travel from place to place, sit down, wait, maybe sit with a group of other artists and actually fight to be seen. Nowadays, I mean, you just post stuff and automatically, you know, you're a cartoonist. You just you don't get paid for it. Right. uh, You know, at least you get to put it out there. I hate to break into the middle of this uh, really this great interview with Ray, but um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to uh, support this podcast by heading over to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating, giving us a five-star rating and a little review that's going to help people come to it, make people interested in it. But uh, even more than that, please follow my work. <laughs> I know, I feel like an idiot asking you, uh, and that's not why I created this podcast, but it is really my only source of outreach, and I am doing a comic that I hope people will read, pick up on. It's called Spiking the Lens, and you can read it at jeffgrogan.com, that's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com, or at spikingthelens.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, at groganjeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F, on Instagram. That's where I'm at. And uh, it's really all I'm asking you to do for uh, uh, if you're looking to help me out in any way. Just follow my work. And uh, that, that really helps a lot. Uh, it goes a long way to supporting the podcast, supporting me, uh, and uh, just making me feel better. So, uh, uh, And we all need a little encouragement, right? I'll try to follow you, too, if you're a cartoonist and you're working and you're working hard at it. Um, I believe in supporting each other. So please check it out, and let's get back to the interview. Uh, I think that's another thing that made Curtis somewhat a success because of the experience I had. Yeah. I know what it's like. I know what it takes to actually try to get an idea over. Yeah. And um, yeah. people don't really seem to realize that if you just put an idea and say, this is so it's not always great. It's not right. always a good idea. You do need sometimes a second or third voice to tell you, 
uh, which way you're going. Right. I locked up with that, knowing the older cartoonists. Uh -huh. They took such an interest in me. I think I was a novelty. So when they got a chance to meet me, you know, it was like, hey, I, here's that kid artist, you know, I heard about, here he is. Right. And I'm like, wow, here's Mark Walker, you know. So, so you know, it sort of worked. Oh, uh, let me tell you, Mark Walker was one of the cartoonists that I happened to adopt. Uh, <laughs> you yeah, adopted him. <laughs> as, you know, as a family member. Yes. Because he took such an interest. And uh, along with Mark came along all of his sons and all. So, I mean, I had an instant family, which was really great. It, some of the greatest people. And Mort, um, he was actually the first that threw me out there in front of audiences. Really? Yeah, he ran a cartoon museum I remember in Connecticut. Yep. Okay, now, I used to go there, and you know, because I was interested, and I was about 15 or 16. And I happened to meet with Mort and uh, he knew about some of the stuff I was doing. And when I think, I think I was about 16 years old, he started putting me out in front of audiences to speak. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> to speak about your work as a cartoonist? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, uh, for me, getting up in front of people, I, I can get up in front of a, a crowd of, of 500 people and, and just speak naturally. Uh, without any fear, because I've I've been doing that so long. Were these um, presentations at the Museum of Cartoon Art in those days? Yes. Or were a variety play. So so that's interesting. So you would make the trip up to I think it was Greenwich, Connecticut, wasn't right. it? Right. In that's the castle, right. or it was it was a building that kind of looked like a castle or something yeah, like. That? It, it was actually a castle. It, it was, was a castle. Castle. Oh yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I yeah. loved going there. I bet, you know, I never made it there. I heard about the place and I always wanted to go, but it had moved by the time I did go to the version of it in Boca Raton. I know that Mort moved everything there for a while. Right. At the end right. Of it. So I did see the collection, which was astounding. It's an amazing collection of comic art. I mean, everybody is in there from, you know, from the early days, yellow kid stuff to. Right. You know, See, well, nowadays yeah. we have uh, the San Francisco Cartoon Museum, uh -huh. and uh, let's see, there's still the Library of Congress that that catalogs a lot of stuff. And Billy Ireland. Yes, Ireland. exactly, yeah. exactly that one. So. I had to speak there once. I mean, there must have been like 200 people. Wow. And I had just got out the hospital. Something had happened to me, and I, I was hospitalized. And I kept saying, I have to get out because I have this speaking engagement. And I came out like two days before that. And I didn't have, I was prepared the way I usually am. Okay. But I got up there and I spoke. And I forget, I, I posted that picture somewhere. Someone took a picture of me. And I, you see, I'm way ahead <laughs> up on this podium. And there's like a whole crowd of people. And you could barely make out who I am because they were sitting way in the back. But, uh, uh, you know, I got up there and I did it. You've got so many interesting stories to tell and, and so much background and also such an interesting story because, you know, most of the cartoonists I talk to are people who, you know, um, developed relatively slowly and and it took time. And your story starts really back when you were a teenager and, and that is really unique. There's not a lot of who who really were working that hard when they were that young. And, yeah. and 
You know, I wondered before, you know, when you were waiting at uh, at offices for your portfolio to be looked at, you must have been the youngest cartoonist in the room. I was. (laughs) Yeah. And and everybody is like astounded. Who's this kid? You know, I remember, you know, some of the guys, they were just staring at me. (laughs) Yeah. And and you didn't know me, you know, and they were going out for the same job. Right. thought, you know, I was a joke. I remember getting the stares. And uh, even from the receptionist, they would look and say, okay, you're here to see who? Because uh, being my age, sometimes they used to think I was like a delivery boy. Oh, man. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm not delivering. I'm I'm here for the interview. Yeah. (laughs) And when they saw your portfolio, they were like, sure. Of course you're here for the interview. You're as good as any of these guys. Amazing. So, um, oh my gosh, Ray, you've got so many stories to tell. And there's so much, even in this amount of time, what we've talked about so far, there's so many things that you've touched on that I would just love to expand and expound upon uh, even more. One of the things that I start to think about was, well, okay, you were talking about Mort Walker. How did that relationship develop? Well, I, I met him at the museum. At the museum. Yeah, I saw him there. And uh, afterwards, I just went right up to him. Like I tell you, I was too young to actually be nervous. Uh huh. Sure. So I saw him and, I, you know, I had a chance and I just went up to him and I started speaking. And uh, I told him who I was. And he said, oh, yes, I've seen your work. Because, wow. you know, uh, most times cartoonists aren't seen. Well, yeah. they used to <laughs> not be seen. Right. We were sort of like elves, you know, <laughs> they're around, but you never see them. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we, we struck up an instant chemistry uh-huh. from that very first meeting, and um, it it went off from there. Well, you and and then and then you became friends with his sons who who are working on the strip yet today. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Brian, Greg, and Neil. And, um, we hit it off. I mean, that's why I say they're like another another uh, family to me. So did you just you go up there sometimes just to hang out in the studio and see what they were doing or what the process well, was? Or? This is the thing. Everybody is very, very busy. I pretty much know what their process is, but, you know, I don't sit in, you know, like in a fear or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of us doing syndicated work, we're working pretty much seven days a week. Right. So, I mean, we may have something special that goes on where we get together or, you know, uh, it might even be a holiday or, or something for the Cartoonist Society and we get together. But uh, we don't get together as much as people might think we do. Yeah. You know, this is a very uh, isolated profession. Yeah. And you spend most of your time by yourself. Because, right. for one, you don't want people to see you at your lowest when you're cursing because you don't have an idea. <laughs> you know, you're banging your head on the wall. You don't want that blood spatter to hit on anyone else. Yeah. So. <laughs> I hope that's not the case, but, yeah. but figuratively, yes, not literally. Right. Right. So, so, um, did Mort Walker give you any advice that stays with you or there, is there anything from looking at Beetle Bailey that you took away and, and have, I, I noticed, for example, uh, there's a Curtis strip where Sarge shows up, Yes, yes. right? He becomes <laughs> the Dean of the, the school and, right. um, yeah, you know, oh, I, I was just messing with him then. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. And you did a great Sarge, man. I mean, it really looks you knocked oh, it out of the park. If I'm going to draw another person's character, I'm going to study them. You know, I won't put it out 
without the character looking true to nature. Yeah. And uh, I was I was included in uh, a Dagwood anniversary years ago, and I did an entire week strip where Dagwood came over to invite Curtis and the family to a party. I saw and, some. Uh, I knew I knew it was going to show up in Blondie that Sunday, so I did an entire <laughs> week. And uh, Jim Davis wanted me to do uh, a drawing of, of Garfield yeah. for one of his collections, and I made sure I drew Garfield looking just like Garfield. I bet, yeah. You it's, know, it... I, I make sure it's exactly the same. And see, uh, I get that from actually Will Eisner. Will Eisner <laughs> taught me how to mimic style exactly mm-hmm. right. and how to change style. Because um, for those who don't, who don't know, he was the creator of the spirit. Right. And I mean, he was responsible for graphic novels as we know it. Yeah. And uh, he gave me a lot of advice and uh, actually was the first artist to really challenge me because uh, by the time I met him, I was an old vet. Right. And I showed him stuff. He knew who I was and he was not impressed. Oh, man. (laughs) He says, so this is all you can do. And see, that made me branch out. See, that that's why I can adapt to different styles today. Because he challenged me to do so. And, you know, I had to do it uh, just to get a, you know, a passing grade from him and a pat on the back. That was um, in the School of Visual Arts, right? Right. He, he was my instructor and he was no nonsense. Will Eisner was not a joke to mm-hmm. be around. Yeah. Uh, you had to come with your A game with him. I knew I had to work hard. Yeah. And uh, also I, I had a instructor his name was harvey kurtzman oh my gosh oh so you know him <laughs> oh of course i know who harvey kurtzman was i mean okay. i'm a big i'm a big lover of comics and and history comics history i i'm like you as a kid i just i steep myself in this material and uh and so harvey kurtzman okay so i was going to ask you who were some of the other teachers you had so harvey kurtzman oh my gosh go ahead yeah now harvey kurtzman he was a nut <laughs> he joked and he he, you know, he he broke the class up all the time. He was completely different. So you went uh, from from Will Eisner, who's being really stern and a real taskmaster, right. to Harvey Kurtzman, who's just kind of a laugh a minute. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had to be ready. But in the School of Visual Arts, each of these classes, they were only about once a week. The only problem is they were like four to six hours. Yeah. yeah. So you're sitting there with this taskmaster. And, oh. and he ain't playing. Right. So that's a long four to six hours to deal so with. So what did you do in like Will Eisner's class? Well, I, I would bring sometimes uh, some of the assignments that I was working on. And uh, I would definitely bring uh, different strips that I was mm-hmm. trying to prepare to I send see. to syndicates. Right. Because, uh, oh, the School of Visual Arts was really good because they had a gallery. I was able to showcase strips that I was working on, uh, you know, I, here's something I used to do. If I was working on an idea for a strip, before I go to pen and ink, I have to write 365 good gags. Oh my I, gosh. I have to have a complete year's work or it wouldn't be worth my time. Yeah. Once I got those written down, then I would go to pen and ink and I actually start drawing it out. Wow. Once, once I get a few weeks, then I will go to School of Visual Arts 
and get it into the gallery. And once it was in the gallery, I would stand back and I would gauge the people's reaction. And that would tell me whether or not I was submitted to the syndicates. I see. It was a long process. You know, it was necessary. How long did um, it take you to write 365 different gags? Well, it depends on the strip. I mean, uh, sometimes uh, with some of the strips, they came right away. And that's how I knew that kind of strip I was going to go to pen and ink because it came very easily. Okay. Sometimes strips after like the initial ideas, after about 30 ideas, it started getting a little bland. And I said, no, this isn't the one. This is right. the one I'm looking for. Right. So right. Uh, it, it sort of depends. I mean, I could write that many gags in a few days or I, I try to do everything in terms of writing. I would try to do it under a month. Wow. Amazing, man. 365 gags. Yeah. It's, it, it takes me like an afternoon to think of three, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to be able to do that. It, that. That really takes a lot of discipline, but also a lot of imagination. And uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would sit and for one, I would come up with some characters that would basically write their own ideas. That's the number one thing. You have to write characters that are so interesting to you. They just write the gags for yeah. you. So that was my main hurdle. That's why I wouldn't go any further unless these characters could come up with these gags or situations. Right. When it's working, they have a life of their own. And yeah, yes, yes, and exactly. It's almost as though, you know, you've opened a door into another world wherein these people live and you just let them be and then they take over and run with it. You know, that's kind of the way it is. And here's something weird. Yeah. I, I know you're going to think of this as weird. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes after I've drawn a strip, uh, I might see it printed somewhere. I feel like I didn't do it. Uh, it's like it's like somebody else did it. Right. Uh, I know I did it. I know I did it. But it's like when I'm doing it, it's like something else takes over. Matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever noticed this doing yours. When I'm really into doing a strip, especially a Sunday strip, uh -huh. it's like all bodily functions stop. You know, I don't have to use the bathroom. Right. You know, I, I don't have to eat anything. I might drink water or some ginger ale next to me, but mm. I don't have to do anything until I'm finished. As soon as I'm finished, then it's like I come back to me. And I usually have to sleep. After I do a week's worth of, of ideas and everything, I usually have to sleep for several hours because so much is taken out of me. Sure. You know, that, I don't know if the other cartoonists go through that, but, you know, it's something that's uh, something I always go through. Well, it's it sounds like a very intense, creative, um, you know, period in, in, that you enter into a kind of meditation, if you will, uh, right. that takes right. you out of yourself and into Curtis's world. Right. And and when you're there, you forget about Ray Billingsley. You just become a conduit by which Curtis comes into the world. Yes. Yeah, and there's been many days that I'm sitting here at my drawing board and like I'm near a window. So, yeah. you know, I could be nosy on what's going on outside. <laughs> but uh, before I know it, the sun is going down. Yeah. And, you know, I've been here all morning throughout the day and, uh, you know, I haven't eaten anything. And, and you know, I, I have to finally get up and, and do things for myself after I'm through. Yeah. But uh, that's my usual days. They go by very quickly because I'm involved in doing all this stuff. 
Well, well, you know, man, this, it's, it's just amazing. There's so many things to, to touch on. We're, we're already here, and I want to go back and ask you a little more about Harvey Kurtzman. And at the same time, I want to keep this th- thread going because this is really interesting. So if you're, you know, you're working in a, in, in a very solitary way, and, and your life has been spent really at the drawing board. And right. in a lot of ways, that's and I know this too as an artist, there's nothing – I'd rather be doing than that is, right. is working at the, I mean, because your mind is always there. You're always thinking about right. what's on the drawing board, what the next idea is, where it's going. You can't wait to get to this idea or this moment in the strip. And it keeps, so it's a very rewarding life in that regard, the life of the mind and the, the life of creativity. At the same time, um, it's a very solitary existence. And yeah, yeah. This is the thing. There is like a flip side to all this because uh, in terms of, of social gatherings and all, I'm a little bit awkward. Okay. I, I can easily speak in front of 500 people more right. than I can speak to two people. You know, when I'm right in front of the people just talking, I tend to become very quiet. I'm, I'm a listener. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm listening because I can put that into a strip somehow, <laughs> or I'm I'm feeling the human condition or something. But uh, I think because most of my life has been spent by myself, I'm not completely comfortable all the time with other people. And I'm very outspoken. Sometimes I'll say something, and they'll be shocked at it. And I'm like, oh, did I say something wrong? You know, you know, I I don't know the protocol. I I have no idea. Right. Is it is it is it something you ever, you know, uh, regret? Uh, the fact that you're working at the drawing board all the time and, and uh, you've not really, you know, well, your life has been there primarily. Funny. Sometimes that, that's sort of um, odd for me to answer because, you know what, there are times when I wish I had done some things that I know I've missed. Uh, there, there are some drawbacks to, you know, having an entire lifetime doing this stuff because I did miss out on some things that, say, like kids do. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of football, but uh, I couldn't really participate in nothing but touch football because um, I, couldn't, I couldn't hurt my hand. Sure. I couldn't risk hurting my hand. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, uh, the guys used to sit around and, you know, just talk about things that I really didn't relate to. So it, it made me awkward. You know, I couldn't relate to them, so they couldn't relate to me. And in, in those instances, I do wish uh, life would have been like a little bit more normal. See, since since it wasn't normal, it's not like I actually miss it. You know what I mean? I know yeah. that there's some things I should have done, but I don't miss it because I didn't do it. <laughs> I know so what you mean. Yeah. You could only yeah. miss it if if you've experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you're so deeply involved. I mean, the, in reality, you know, the life of Curtis and, and Greg and Diane and Barry, they're, they're so tangible and so real in a lot of ways Yes, that, that yeah. they, they make up for a family in a way because you're, you, and I, I know to people who are not cartoonists, that's going to sound strange, but yeah. 
<laughs> for those of us who live in the world of cartooning and, and work on these things, as we said before, it's like opening a door into a world where if their characters function properly, they're right. alive. And right. and they, you know, I, I mentioned this once in a podcast earlier, but Charles Schultz's last comic uh, where he said, you know, Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy and Snoopy, how will I ever forget them? And which sounds like an odd thing to say you know, in a comic strip or a, a, as you're leaving your work. But for him, they were real people. And those of us who are cartoonists, I think we can understand. It makes sense to say something like that, because to him, they were people who he related to and loved. You know, there's a, a sad story uh, with between Schultz and I. Uh, I remember it was a year before he decided to do it. Uh, he told me he was thinking of retiring. And he said, you know, I've been doing this for so long, you know, um, I don't see I could, where I could take it any further. And I had told him flat out, uh, if you stop doing this strip, you're going to die. Wow. I said, you are so connected with the strip that yeah. if you don't do it, something's going to happen. Yeah. And then I got the phone call, you know, a year later, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, uh, it is. He he passed like what a day before the last strip. I think the night before. The night yeah, before it was the last like strip. That. Oh I mean, man. I knew I knew in advance that you know he was planning to quit. Well, you know, Ray, when 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 you had that, when you said that to him, how did he respond? Uh, well, he he knew what I was talking about, but the thing of it is, uh, he was telling me he didn't think. He could go any further. The, the characters, the situation, and mind you, uh, the times were were changing. Yeah. And yeah. kids didn't know who Beethoven was. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, they didn't even know what lemon booths were. You know, the lemonade booths were. Yeah. yeah much no. less, you know, Lucy's psychiatry booth. Yeah. Uh, kids weren't flying kites anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, tastes were really changing. And, you know, uh, his strip was pretty much, you know, uh, mired in a different time. You'd be surprised. It, it's really kind of hard uh, to keep up with certain things because you become intrigued, fascinated or fond of certain subjects. And then the way time goes, those things change right. and they don't fit anymore. Uh, in early years, Curtis would get a phone call from a girl or something. And Barry would listen in on the extension. Huh. As soon as uh, cell phones came out, that idea had to go. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, they don't do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, I used to love having Curtis and his mother go uh, back to school shopping. And she would tell him to try on these pants in the fitting room. He was in there with his pants around his ankles. She would open <laughs> the door and people saw him in his underwear. And they'd laugh <laughs> and scream. But see... That idea is falling because they don't shop like that anymore. Yeah. You know, most shopping is on the Internet. Those those ideas don't work anymore. And a lot of times characters aren't so able to be able to jump to different things. It strikes me, you know, to think that Schultz was thinking that in a way. And it's funny. It, it it's it's an odd thing to think about. It, it makes me sad in a lot of ways, but it also, you know, makes me realize, like when I talk to other cartoonists our age, you know, 
Um, I talk about how Peanuts hasn't really dated because it's not a topical strip. Right. But the accoutrements of it, just as you're, you're going through it, the, the little details, the things that, that the, the props around the strip have changed. And right. you're absolutely right. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I mean, I did see recently in a park not too far away uh, a father and his kids with a kite. And that, so that was kind of a heartwarming moment. But you're right. You know, there's a lot about the strip in Peanuts that uh, is part of the 20th century and has right. changed a lot. And right. I think that as a cartoonist, it, it is, you know, particularly, and I don't want to keep saying that we're old because I don't feel old. And I, 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 I think I read somewhere, maybe it was an Instagram post you put up where you said you feel like you haven't accomplished half of what you set out to do yet. Oh, yes. And, yes. and I feel the same way. I don't feel old or anything. But, but at the same time, trying to keep up with like pop culture like in curtis curtis is a fan of rap and hip-hop and you know oh, and, and horror movies and horror movies. horror movies horror movies well i can get into horror movies not so much contemporary ones again here i am an old guy like greg right i, I right. like older movies the oh, older yeah. horror movies right but uh, curtis is into the newer stuff and the newer music and and it must be hard for you in a way i mean are you more like curtis you're more like greg in that regard well, actually, I'm more like Greg, but yeah. I do know, you know, to keep up with the times, I have to be more like Curtis. One more time, I'm going to ask you to check out my work at jeffgrogan.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. You'll see that I've, I've traveled quite an odd little path uh, that is very much my own, strange as it is, into this corner and that corner. But to check it out, I'm currently working on a comic called spikeinthelens.com. If you listen to this whole show, you know that by now. Uh, you can get to it on, my, on the menu at jeffgrogan.com. So check it out, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. You can follow me also on Instagram if you'd prefer to do that at G at Grogan Jeff G E R O G A N G E O F F. See if I can spell it right. It's only my name. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I have to ask you. Well, no, I don't have to ask you, but I want to ask you to because. Uh, you know, like anybody else, I'd like you to follow my work. And that's really all I'm asking you to do. So um, if you want to support me and support the podcast, that goes a long way. So uh, thanks again. It takes a lot to keep a comic strip alive uh, over the course of 31 years. And Ray continues to do that admirably. And uh, uh, it was quite interesting. Kind of made me a little sad uh, when we talked about um, seeing Peanuts in the context of the 20th century uh, as a historical strip, really. Um, and some, I guess it's time to say that it is, right? Um, but that being said, uh, Curtis is still being produced and uh, continues to move forward, and Curtis is still engaged with popular culture. And like Greg, uh, we, we my, Ray and I, sort of sit back and watch it all happen, I guess. Um, eventually, you know, all of our popular culture becomes old culture, and uh, you're steeped in your... You're connected to your generation one way or the other. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that because uh, I really said most of what I had to say in the beginning, in the intro, and I hope you're going to come back for part two because part two is really interesting. Uh, it gets even deeper into Ray's relationship with Charles Schultz, which was uh, a very interesting relationship, and he's got some, some really wonderful insights and uh, fun stories to relate to us. So come back for part two. And uh, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening.